in the last five days? Have you told a lie? Have you gossiped about someone? Have you said something harsh out of anger? Have you been unkind in your words or actions? If you have, I'd like to encourage you to listen to today's podcast about how we can deal with shame in our lives over the wrongs that we have done. Or more specifically put, how we can handle the shame that we experience when we disobey God. Our culture today is dumbing down the word sin. They don't want to use this word anymore. Our culture views making people feel bad by telling them that they are sinning as horrible. When Christians, out of love and care for others, tell people that they are condemned before God, our culture gets outraged. The word sin has disappeared from our present-day culture. There are many people who don't know what sin is or what it means anymore. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Respectable Sins, writes this, Part of God's calling is to lead us to the place where we do see the sins we tolerate in our own lives, so that we will experience the repentance and renewal we need. We must call sin what it is. Sin is missing the mark. That's not meeting God's standard of perfection. Sin is disobeying God's word. That's violating God's law. And sin is rebelling against God's plan. In a passage I would like to look at today, we will look at how God is pure in his thoughts, his words and deeds. He communicates and interacts with those who are living habitual lives and hating sin and honoring God in what they dwell on, say, and do. I will cover four facts about sin. Number one, there is no sin in God. Number two, those who habitually sin don't have fellowship with God. Number three, those who say they have no sin deceive themselves and call God a liar. And number four, those who confess their sin to God are forgiven and cleansed. As a teen, I went on a backpacking trip once to South Carolina's highest point, Sassafras Mountain. As the group was hiking there, we passed by two girls who were on a day hike. We bid them farewell, we wished them good luck, and we continued on our way. That night, we arrived at our campsite and set up camp. It was the dead of winter, but we had the materials we, that we needed to stay warm. As we gathered around the campfire, who should come wandering into our camp but these two girls? They were lost, they were in darkness, and they did not know the way off the mountain. It was decided that two guys in our group should walk these girls to the ranger station. So with flashlights in hand, the two guys and these two girls who were lost went off. The darkness that the girls had been in was replaced by the light. With the help of the flashlights from these guys, they found their way to the ranger station. We'll see in our passage today, 1 John 1, 5 through 10, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. I'd like to read 1 John 1, verse 5 to us. It says, 
This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Darkness in this passage represents sin. God does not have any sin in him. God cannot abide sin. Light represents purity. Scripture often uses light as a symbol of the saving presence of God in a fallen world, with darkness being used as a symbol of sin or as the absence of God. When I was about to become engaged to my wife, my wife and I began to look at engagement rings. I quickly found out from the jewelers that we talked to that there were four C's that I needed to look for in a diamond. The cut, the color, the carrot, and the clarity. I wanted the real deal. I didn't want anything cheap. I wanted a genuine and valuable diamond to be in the ring that I bought for my wife. God, he is the real deal. God is pure. God does not have any sin inside him. He has no blemishes. He has no imperfections. 1 Peter 1, 15-16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Habakkuk 1, 13 says, Thou art of pure eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look on iniquity. The Bible says here in this passage that God is light, means that God is pure. God is without sin. He has no blemishes. Think about a road trip or a vacation in which you have been driving at night. You can barely see the road in front of you, so you turn on your high beams and the darkness vanishes. Or think about a sports game that you have attended at night, soccer, baseball, football, it gets dark. They turn on the floodlights and all the field lights up and the players can play the game. So it is with God. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So how does this relate to the shame that we feel when we have done wrong? Number one, that God cannot abide sin in our lives. The Bible talks about a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow that we can feel, that we can sense when we've done wrong. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, For godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly sorrow produces death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. If people feel bad over the wrongs they have done, this is a good step in the right direction. However, it must go beyond feeling bad or feeling bad that you got caught. A person must recognize that their sin offends a holy God. Their sin must be dealt with in a just way. Our culture teaches people to focus on their personal goodness. Our world teaches people to distract themselves from any shame that they may feel. The world teaches individuals to consider what they like about themselves when they are feeling badly over how they mistreated someone in their words and actions. On the other hand, the Bible teaches that the guilt and remorse someone experiences over evil acts committed against someone can be cleansed and forgiven. 
This can only happen when they accept Jesus' death on the cross as payment for their sins and when they ask forgiveness for their disobedience towards God. The organization Got Questions has this to say about godly sorrow. Godly sorrow results from a heartfelt conviction that we have offended God by our sin. Such a burning conviction produces in our hearts a godly sorrow. As we look upon him who was pierced for our sins, we are deeply grieved in spirit, and we resolve within our hearts that we will, with the help of God, cease to do evil and learn to do good. I want you to imagine with me a friend who has hurt you. How would you feel if they said, sorry, but there was no change in their life? You may begin to doubt the genuineness of their apology. Same it is with us when we know we have done wrong in our lives, when we know we have disobeyed God, and yet there is no desire to change. We know we struggle with lying. We know we struggle with stealing. We know we struggle with gossip or discontent or jealousy in our lives. But there is no desire to change. When we disobey God and there is no desire to change, all this brings is more shame. Moving on to point two, those who habitually sin don't have fellowship with God. We read in verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. Two things I want to bring up here in this section is number one. Those who are not Christians do not have fellowship with God. The Bible says that they are an enemy of God, that they are at enmity with God in their lives, that they are living a life of rebellion against God and his ways. Someone who is not a Christian does not have fellowship with God. On the other hand, point two, someone who is a Christian does have fellowship with God. This is a personal relationship with God. This is a personal friendship with God, just like you would have with a close family member or a friend. So how does sin then affect a Christian's relationship with God? Well, number one, they don't lose their salvation. When a Christian sins, they do not have to earn back favor with God. When a Christian finds himself living a life of habitual sin, their sin affects their closeness that they have to God. Their sin affects the closeness in their friendship with God. Let's think of it in terms of a family. When you were growing up and you lied to your mom and dad and you disobeyed your mom and your dad, did this mean that you were no longer their child? Did this mean that you were no longer their son or their daughter? No, of course not. You are still their child. You are still a part of your family. However, what did this do to the relationship that you had with your mother or your father? I'm sure it created some distance. 
I'm sure you are not as close with them before you had lied, before you had disobeyed them. Same it is with God. When a Christian finds himself living a life of habitual sin, this affects the closeness that they have with God in their relationship. In a discipleship book called Foundations, Biblical Truths for Christian Growth, I'd like to read a section, paraphrase it, about this topic. It says the Bible explains that a healthy Christian will experience deeper and closer fellowship with God over the course of his or her life. When they are obeying God, when they are reading the Bible, when they are spending time talking to him in prayer, we are increasing in our fellowship with God, growing in grace. However, when we are disobeying God, when we are ignoring God and not taking time to read the Bible, to spend time with him in prayer, we are decreasing in fellowship with God and regressing towards worldliness. Fellowship is a dynamic idea. It's either growing or shrinking. Though your sin hurts your fellowship with God, your relationship as his child is eternal and unchanging. Two questions to ask if you find yourself living a life of habitual sin. Number one, am I a Christian? If not, find a Christian that you know and ask them to explain to you how you can become a believer in God, a believer in Jesus Christ and how he died on the cross for your sins and shed his blood so that your sins could be forgiven. If you determine that you are a Christian, move on to the next question. Do I need to grow in my fear of God? That is, do I need to grow in hating the things that God hates and loving the things that God loves? I again would encourage you to find a mature Christian who can help develop within you a hatred towards the sin that is in your life and a love for the things that God loves. Our sin in our lives affects our relationship with God. Shame can come from the wrongs that we do. There was a man of a small town who was a truck driver. One night as he was finishing up his work, he was rounding a bend in the road, when all of a sudden he saw a boy on a bike. Before he could do anything about it, he had hit the boy, sending the boy flying into a ditch. He stops the vehicle and gets out. He goes over and sees that the boy is hurt, and then the man begins to panic. What am I going to do? What am I, my friends going to say about me? And as the more he thinks about this, the more he panics. And unfortunately, in the midst of his panic, he gets back into the vehicle and drives off. Moments later, another person drives up. They see that the boy is hurt, they put him into their vehicle, and they drive him to a nearby hospital. Unfortunately, in our story, the boy dies. Word spreads around town the next day that somebody had hit a boy and had left him there hurt, and eventually the boy died. The story eventually gets back to the truck driver, who begins to feel guilt and shame over what he has done. As the story gets to him, from person to person throughout the day, he can take it no longer. At the end of that day, he goes down to the police station and says, I am the man that hit the boy. The truck driver was promptly arrested, 
His family was shocked to hear that it was their dad that had hit this boy. His wife was shocked to hear that it was her husband who had left this boy there hurt in the ditch. Eventually, when the family was able to visit with him, they asked, Dad, why did you do this? Why didn't you help the boy that you had hit? And slowly, his story came out that because of a pattern of lying and deceiving others, this had led him to do his actions. When he was a boy, his father had brought home a pocket watch. This boy loved his dad's pocket watch, and he wanted to take it to school and show his friends. His dad said, no, son, I'd rather you keep it home. A few days later, the dad headed off to work, and the boy reached into his dad's top dresser drawer, taking the watch. He brought it to school, and during recess, he showed it to his friends. And as they were passing it hand to hand, the watch slipped and dropped to the ground, breaking in many pieces. The boy picked it up and began to panic. What am I going to do? What am I going to tell my dad? He wrapped it in a handkerchief, and he took it back home. He placed it in his dad's top dresser drawer and went on his way. That night, the father comes home. He finds the pocket watch. He asks his son, Son, do you know anything about this? To which the boy says, No, Dad, I don't. And surprisingly, the father does not question him any further. The boy then thinks to himself, Huh, I lied about it, and I got away. I wonder if I could do this again. And the next time something came up, he lied about it. The next time something came up that he did not want to take responsibility for, he lied about it. And on into his teen years, and on into his adult years, until the point that he was a truck driver and he hit this boy, he did not want to take responsibility, and so he drove off into the night. This man's sin affected his relationship with God. He deceived himself through the lies. Like the man in this story, we too can have the same mindset when we ignore our sin. This leads us to point three here, which says, We lie when we say we don't have any sin. 1 John 1, 8 and 10 say, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I love the evangelism program led by Kirk Cameron and Ray Comfort. When they go out and begin to tell others about Jesus, they use questions. They use the Ten Commandments to lead people to Christ. Consider if you can relate to some of these questions that they ask. They ask, do you consider yourself to be a good person? Have you ever lied before? Have you ever stolen something, even if it is really small? Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Have you ever looked upon someone with lust? They explain that the Bible calls these people liars, thieves, blasphemers, and adulterers at heart. And if we stand before God on Judgment Day without having asked God to forgive us of our sins, without having got our relationship right with God, we stand before God condemned. John says the way to deal with sin and shame in your life is to confess your sin to God. Place your trust in Jesus' sacrificial death as the payment for your disobedient acts towards God. 
Upon doing this, God will forgive and cleanse you from your sin. On the basis of this forgiveness and cleansing, you can have a personal relationship with God. Lastly, we see in our final point, the answer to the shame that we experience over the wrongs that we have done. We see the answer to the shame that we feel when we have disobeyed God. Point number four says, God cleanses us when we confess and forsake our sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a story told of a brother and a sister who live with their grandparents on their farm. On this farm are cows, goats, sheep, chickens. The kids loved helping raise the animals with their grandparents. The boy, he had a slingshot for a toy. In the afternoons, he enjoyed going out and practicing. He wasn't very good, but he still had fun. One afternoon, he sees his grandma's favorite duck, and he thinks to himself, what are the odds that I could hit this duck? He takes aim, and he lets the rock fly, and he hits the duck and kills it. He's thinking to himself, great, this wasn't supposed to happen. I didn't actually think I was going to hit the duck, nonetheless kill it. And he runs off, hoping that nobody saw him. That night, the grandma finds the duck, and around the dinner table, she asks everyone if they knew what had happened. The boy specifically said no, he did not know what had happened. A couple nights later, the grandma asks his sister if she would help clear the table and do some household chores in the evening. The grandma goes off into the kitchen. The sister turns to her brother and says, I don't want to clear the table. Why don't you clear the table tonight? He looks at her and says, why should I? She leans over and whispers, remember the duck? To which the boy quickly agrees that he'll clear the table and do her chores that evening. A couple days later, the grandma asks his sister again to help out around the house, to which the sister runs off to her brother and tells him what he's going to do. At first he says, no, I'm not. And she leans over and says, remember the duck? This goes on for about a week. And at the end of the week, the boy has just had it. He runs to his grandma one afternoon and says, Grandma, I've got something to confess. I am the one that killed your duck. I hit it with my slingshot. I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? The grandma looks down at her, her grandson, and she says to him, I know. I was just wondering how long it was going to be that you were going to let your sister hold you in bondage. When the boy in the story confessed his sin, it was freeing for him. When he confessed his sin, he was no longer in bondage to the power that his sister held. And when he confessed his sin to his grandma, he did not have to worry about hiding his guilt and his shame. And his grandma forgave him. That's the same it is with us. When we confess and forsake our sin, it is freeing for us. Sin no longer has its power and bondage over us. We do not have to feel that we have to hide our guilt and our shame. And like this passage says, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
two words that I want to bring out from this passage are guilt and shame. Guilt, it's a legal standing that all of us have before God. Before we became a Christian, when we stood before God, we were guilty of breaking God's law, of disobeying and violating God's law. We stood before God condemned. But God intervened in history. He became a man named Jesus and died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And if we believe that Jesus is real and we trust that his sacrifice on the cross is payment for our sins, and when we confess our sins, God declares us righteous. We go from being one who is condemned in our guilt to being declared righteous. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The other word is shame. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. This is taken from Ed Welch's book, Shame Interrupted. Today we are specifically talking about the shame that we experience when we have disobeyed God, when we have done wrong in our lives. The Bible speaks to this. When we confess our sin and ask God to forgive us, we are to trust God's promises that he has cleansed us, that he has forgiven us, that we are redeemed, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. On the other hand, you can tell God you're sorry for your lying, your jealousy, your discontentment, your harshness. But if we keep doing these things over and over and over and over again, well, of course, there's going to be shame that we experience and feel in our lives. The Bible talks about repentance. We turn from our old habits and we turn toward the ways that please God. Part of repentance is acknowledging your dependence upon God, stating your sin specifically to him when you confess it. That's considering your heart's motive, considering the lies that you are believing. Ask for forgiveness and repent by putting off ungodly habits and putting on new God-honoring habits. And lastly, seek out Christian fellowship. Find a Christian that you trust, that you can pray with over your sin, that you can do a Bible study with, that you can talk to about life and your struggles. If you're a Christian today, I encourage you, attack the sin that is in your life. Be intentional. Rely upon God for help. In God's help, with God's promises, we can rid ourselves of the shame that we feel and experience over the ways that we disobey God. If you are not a Christian and you are listening to this podcast, consider the story of Jesus found in the first four books of the New Testament. Take time to intentionally think about his death on the cross for your sins, your acts of rebellion against God. Confess your sin to him and place your trust that in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, your sins can be paid for. There is a way that your sins can be forgiven.